Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Sometimes she wondered if part of her motivation to pursue art was simply spite. This program features the work of 2015 writer Anka Seligi. Curator Kevin Kraft sat down with her in the studio. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the project you're working on currently for Jack Straw? Yeah, so um, this novel is called Paralegal, and it's about a young visual artist from Brooklyn. She's chosen the quirky medium of dioramas and assemblage, um, and she's really enamored with the artist Joseph Cornell, who is this very nostalgic artist from the 20s to the 60s, so kind of this huge swath of time that would collect all these enigmatic like cutouts of Victorian books and movie starlets and like little elements of pinball machines. So these very like whimsical collections of objects. But she's struggling to do something with the art um, and is starting to resent friends who are, you know, off with their day jobs doing well or doing well enough. Mm-hmm. And so she takes a job as a paralegal. Um, this is the summer of 2008, so just before the economic crisis. And she gets a job at this scrappy boutique law firm all the way at the top of the Lipstick Building, which is this famous pink conical building. Um, happened to be the same place where Bernie Madoff's offices were. So she gets kind of swept up in the drama of a trial Um, It's not very romantic. It's a bank and an insurance company. But she gets kind of weirdly invested in it. And, you know, even as she learns about how smarmy both sides of the trial are and, you know, starts to question her investment and kind of realizing she's been rooting for a loan shark, things start to change for her. And then the Madoff scandal explodes and Hmm. mayhem ensues. <laughs> so it sounds like, in terms of plot and character, that this um, allows you to bring several themes together. Like you mentioned the recent economic crisis and life in New York for, as a young person and struggling uh, with uh, life decisions or career decisions. Uh, should I be an artist? Should I be something more practical, comparing oneself to one's generation, one's friends? In what ways do those various themes sort of uh, circle each other or come together in your work? Or are you not even conscious of that particularly and you just want to tell a good story? I mean, I think the story comes first. But if I look at, you know, now I'm in the revision process, I can be a little more reflective on how those things are working together. I think... As a young artist, and she's like, you know, she's 25. I'm kind of ex- obsessed with the, the notion of executive function, like where you, that point at 25 where y- your decision making starts to change. Like she makes some poor decisions, especially earlier on in the novel. And a lot of it is based on envy and comparing herself to friends she's met in college that might be from different economic backgrounds, have different opportunities that just sort of seem to just come at them, whereas she's really struggling and groping in the dark a little bit. She's not really sure how people get those opportunities. So when she starts to get positive reinforcement in the office, that's when she starts to think, maybe this art thing isn't really for me. Maybe maybe I should just do this. 
Why dioramas? Why did you use that as a... I mean, you could have her do anything as an artist, right? Right. Why choose dioramas? That's a really good question, and I'm I'm not really sure. Like, I don't know how it came to me, but that's sort of what attracted me and then stuck. I think it's something about the collection of found objects, and a lot of those found objects sort of speaking to a prior time. So she's sort of looking back at this older New York in the same way that before her, Joseph Cornell was sort of dreaming of, you know, late 19th century ballet and uh, movie starlets of the 20s. And even as he was going into the 60s, um, sort of he was always looking back at this time he couldn't access anymore. And I think that she's also kind of looking back to him looking back. So in writing about a character like this uh, in the elements that you just described, what is it that really, you know, sort of animates you or, or fires you up as a fiction writer when you know that you're doing well with the material? What is that? I think tapping into that whatever deep-seated energy is in the character, you know, what makes them kind of mad or passionate. And I love surprising myself when I'm writing and so just sort of – when I remember to let the characters speak and just sort of have their own conversation without my orchestration is kind of when things get really interesting and fun and take the story in directions I'm not totally expecting. Not being a primarily a fiction writer myself, I'm fascinated by the notion that you let the character lead or you're listening in. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means uh, exactly? I mean, it's your imagination at work. So when you're listening into the character, what are you listening for? Something deeper in your own experience or something outside of yourself? I, yes, I think it's a it's a mixture. I mean, of course you have to get to know your characters before you let them speak for themselves. But it's sort of a constantly asking what if, like what if this character – who may be like me or maybe be different in some ways, you know, what if they interacted with this other person of this other background? You know, what would they say to each other? And so I guess um, in terms of understanding where these people come from, you know, maybe this one person grew up in, you know, in the Bronx in the 50s and this other person grew up in Brooklyn in the 80s and what do they have to say to each other in the you know present day or whatever 2008 Lehman Brothers is whatever gone and what do they have to say about their completely different and yet similar experiences now we'll hear a selection from Anka's live reading up the four flights to their ocean parkway co-op the smells alternated between cabbage soup and sauerkraut and something else. The strange scent of caraway seeds, the solid, homey aroma of boiled potato. Her mother greeted her with the enthusiasm of a relative only seen at major holidays, kissing her cheeks and remarking that she looked well before pulling her inside where it smelled of burnt beans and baked yams. Sorry, her father said. I let your mother cook. <laughs> let me get a better look at you, Arlene said. Actually, you look a little pale. Are you eating enough? How are those lawyers treating you? 
fine, Mom. Let me nuke those tuna steaks we got in the freezer, her father said. The girl needs extra protein. Her mother clucked her tongue and shook her head. We weren't planning on fish tonight, but your father's right. Just a few minutes in the nuker, then I'll sear them real nice. How's that? And what are you doing wearing heels on a Sunday? What is this, church? You'll ruin your feet, not to mention varicose veins. Benny slipped off her heels. I'm trying to get used to wearing them more often. I've got this trial coming up. I don't want to look like a kid playing dress up. Arlene stroked Benny's cheek with her thumb. Albert chuckled softly and padded into the kitchen in his slippers. In a way, they seemed more and more like grandparents. They had Benny late. Her mother's hair, kept short, was a silvery gray. Her father had a nice, round, bald head. She was beginning to feel protective of them. At the circular wooden table that had been in the small family Benny's whole life, they ate microwaved and seared tuna and burnt navy beans and toast and drank tap water. <laughs> so what's with this trial, asked Albert. It's in November, said Benny. I probably can't talk about it. Top secret, eh? He smiled a dreamy smile with his eyes half closed. <clears throat> Benny leaned in and nodded. Her father was an avid reader of spy thrillers. If she could be assured invincibility, he probably would have loved for Benny to be in the CIA or the MI5. Paralegaling seemed like a semi-thrilling second choice for him, as long as she cut out the boring details. The art he didn't get. Every piece she'd shown him was interesting. Well. Everyone's so glad you're in a stable situation, said Arlene. Benny cringed at the word everyone, imagining her mother sharing every detail of her life with all her friends, relatives, neighbors. Do you like it? I guess I like it enough. Oh, maybe you'll take a look at that LSATs book I gave you, a college graduation present. Three years of dust covered crack the LSATs, which had sat at the far corner beneath her bed since she moved into Aunt Ruby's place. Its spine remained pristine. The hope in Arlene's voice generated a wave of guilt in Benny. Guilt laced with irritation. Maybe, she said. You know, this art thing just isn't reliable. You can do it on the side, of course. Everyone has hobbies. But we want to make sure you've got a secure future. Benny bristled at this word, hobby. She'd heard it many times. Sometimes she wondered if part of her motivation to pursue art was simply spite. <laughs> yes, she thought, zooming in on that feeling in her gut. If she didn't feel spiteful at graduation, she was certainly starting to feel spiteful now. <laughs> they ate in silence a while. Then Albert stuck his pinky stub against his nose, his pinky lost in a carpentry accident. His 24-year-old nose-picking joke. Reluctantly, Benny snorted with laughter. Gross, Dad. 
Oh, Al. Well, it works, doesn't it? <laughs> Arlene brought out the baked yams for dessert. Want to make them tropical, she asked. They sprinkled the yams with coconut rum, a tiny bottle they acquired on their vacation in Puerto Rico a year ago. They weren't really rum drinkers, except when it came to fruity dessert. God, thought Benny, that teeny, tiny bottle. Speaking of work, Benny said, raking her fork through glops of rummy yam. I'm thinking of moving to the city. That commute can be kind of tiresome on a late night. Give up Ruby's apartment? Well, yeah. She'd been grateful to have inherited Ruby's place, thinking it would give her a chance to pursue art. But now that she had the full-time job, she simply felt beholden to her family, stifled. Oh, honey, said Arlene, I don't think that's a good idea. Think of all the money you're saving. You're set for life. Well, it just doesn't feel safe and all when I'm on the subway all alone at 9 o'clock. She hoped they wouldn't ask about the black cars, the fancy cars that whisked her home any time she worked past 8 o'clock. Living in Manhattan seemed like a fun idea and liberating. Maybe a new place would give her a sense of artistic freedom, shake things up. And she could sleep later, be home quicker, and maybe not feel like she's living an extended childhood. Sure, whatever she found would be considerably smaller and considerably more expensive. But then, wouldn't that be the true New York City dream so many people have? As a small girl, she'd assumed that by 25, she'd be married and living in one of those castle-like buildings next to Central Park. She'd since adjusted her assumptions considerably. Well, I guess you're an adult and you can make your own decisions, but it seems like an enormous waste to me. Al patted Arlene's arm as if to say, you've made your point. Benny carried the dessert plates into the kitchen. Want to stay for mystery, asked Arlene. It's probably a rerun, but your father never remembers. Benny exhaled as she descended the cabbage-scented faux granite stairway. She rather liked her new idea of moving to the city. She'd set it out of spite, and now she simply had no choice but to follow through. She had to show her mother that she could go at it alone, that she could, in fact, be fully independent. She smiled at herself. She was growing a spine. On the way to the Fort Hamilton Parkway station, Binnie passed a young couple in elfin hipster shoes. The man's were light green with trapezoidal toes, and the woman's burnt orange and curved at the tip. They looked at her, then looked away, almost ashamed as if coming home to Kensington was not nearly as cool as coming home to Williamsburg, which was what their outfits aspired to. Binney recalled exploring Williamsburg as a high schooler with a Time Out New York map in hand and remarking that it seemed like a strange artsy college town that had been airlifted into northern Brooklyn. Eight years later, it was a different thing again, gone on to the next stage of development with pricey boutiques and high-end restaurants and narrow sidewalks crammed with shoppers and SUV-sized 
baby strollers. <laughs> Nearer to Kensington, Park Slope had long been through this, but no one ever thought of non-brownstone Brooklyn. No one thought of the vast swath south of Prospect Park. In a way, Binnie too felt shame. And at the same time, pride. This is real, authentic Brooklyn. Not those northern parts with the gentrifying interlopers. But was she somehow one of the interlopers? even as a born and bred Brooklynite? Was she a traitor wanting to move to Manhattan and pretending she was one of the conquering hordes? Shouldn't she feel a little pride in the slow trickle of artsy types, even if they seem to only show their faces late in the night for fear of recognizing each other in a not cool part of Brooklyn? Wasn't she an artsy type? Hadn't she hated that friend of Ellen's who'd moved to New York and refused to consider living anywhere but Manhattan, even though it meant her rent would eat more than half her income and she'd still be in a rat hole? She'd hated that stupid bitch. <laughs> and here she was, wanting the same. Sliding <coughs> into a bright orange seat on the F train, she unclenched her fists. She expelled a long, yogic breath. <sighs> the kind of breath Beatrice always seemed to be throatily expelling to stay calm in the face of office chaos. There is no need to feel angry. No need. When the train shot out of the 4th Avenue station, she gazed at Gowanus, the canal glittering, the blue light of the Lowe's sign glowing in the night, reflecting on the black water. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2015 curator of this program is Kevin Kraft. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Daniel Gunther and Levi Fuller. Recording engineers are C.J. Lazenby, Tom Stiles, Mo Preventure, Daniel Gunther, and Steve Tatori. Narrator is Alyssa Keen, and executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by St. Helen's String Quartet, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>